Bob was mentioning today in Sunday school some of the benefits of teaching verse by verse through the Bible. So if perhaps there are new people here today. We do teach verse by verse through the Bible. Bob has been going through 1 Corinthians. He'll be getting into 1 Corinthians 5. I'm now entering into Matthew chapter 7. And so let me just set up my PowerPoint and we'll be getting started here. Now, dear ones, today we're going to be examining, I think, one of the most abused passages in all of the Bible, and that is the opening phrase of it is, judge not, from the King James Version. And how many times have you been trying to give the gospel to someone or trying to correct them about a wrong, and they'll simply say, judge not? Well, today you and I are going to learn that what the Bible prohibits is not all forms of judgment, but in particular, hypocritical judgment. And so we're going to learn in the Bible today that we must make judgments about right and wrong. But, dear ones, we have to do it by the Scriptures, and we have to hold ourselves to the same standards. And so, yes, you and I, we're going to learn we have to make judgments, but we cannot do it in a hypocritical way. Now, I want to begin here in verses 1 through 2 of Matthew 7, where Jesus explains how our judgment must not be given in a hypocritical manner. Notice he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, I'm going to pull up my pointer here. I want you to notice this opening phrase where he says, do not judge. In the King James Version, many of you probably have that memorized to simply judge not. And my claim is I think that that is the official verse of the unregenerate world. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about it. If you ever watch football, You'll notice in the stadiums of the NFL, people will hold up a John 3.16 sign. And so the old joke is John 3.16 is the official verse of the NFL. Well, judge not is the official verse of the unregenerate world because it's oftentimes the only Bible verse they know. And it's designed to deflect against us going after them with the gospel in the Bible. Now, I want to begin by talking about this term for judgment, crino, Crino is a term that originally had to do with technical decisions made in a courtroom, but it's also used just generically for making judgments about events, about things, and about people. And you have to know that the term in and of itself is not a negative one. In context of the passage today, what is negative is not all forms of judgment, but judgment in which someone calls into account someone for sin all the while they are committing the same sin. That's what Jesus is prohibiting here. It's not all forms of judgment. In fact, we know Jesus cannot be prohibiting all forms of judgment because as we proceed through the book of Matthew, he's going to call us to make judgment. In fact, we're going to see that today in the very passage we're covering, Matthew 7, 6, Jesus will call us to judge the swine and the dogs that should not be preached to. And then when we get to Matthew seven fifteen through 20, we have to judge the false teachers and the prophets by their fruits. I would define as we get there to that passage, fruit as both doctrine and deed. So you will judge a true saying from, of Christ, a true word from a teacher if it lines up with the Bible, but you reject those that don't. That requires judgment. When we get to Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17, we're called to judge in binding and loosing. Binding means we are morally bound to something. If you are loosed, you are morally free. So, for example, under the new covenant, we are morally bound not to steal, as one example. But are we morally bound to live in Minneapolis or in some other city? No, we're morally loosed. We are free to live where we want. That's the idea, and that requires judgment using the Scriptures. So over and over again, we are called in the Scriptures to make judgments. So what is Jesus prohibiting exactly? Well, notice he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. That's his purpose statement. And so there's something about if you and I hold someone to a standard, that is a standard that's going to be held upon us. Now, we know this because notice in verse 2, you have an explanatory four in the box. Normally, when you see a four in a passage, you should ask, what is it there for? Well, here it's explanatory, and what Jesus is doing is he's explaining what he means that we shouldn't judge lest we be judged. He says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. 
and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Germans, notice the divine passives. When we judge, and by the measure we judge, we're going to be judged by God. That's the implication of this divine passive. The way we measure it to others, it will be measured to us. And so the reason I'm pointing this out is what Jesus is prohibiting is not all forms of judgment, but hypocritical judgment, holding people to a standard that you don't hold yourself to. Now, this often comes up when we are giving the gospel. Let me tell you a little story. Some years ago, prior to COVID shutting down the gyms, I used to go to a gym. I had to build my own in my garage because I didn't ever know if they were ever going to open up again. But I remember one day I was in the gym. I was giving the gospel to this fella. And he told me at the end of my gospel presentation, judge not. Well, when I asked him to finish the rest of the verse, of course, he could not. But he thought because I was telling him he was a sinner and needed Christ, that I was somehow violating this passage. And I want you to know that as you give the gospel to people out in the unregenerate world, you are not violating Matthew 7, 1. Why? Because you are not saying to the sinner, hey, you wretched sinner, you need a savior, but I'm a swell fella or gal and I don't. No. What we are saying as Christians is that I'm a wretched sinner who needs the savior and you're a wretched sinner who needs the savior. And so we're holding the culture and people around us to the same standard. That is not a violation of Matthew 7, 1 through 2. And I say this because you and I are living in a culture that is literally drowning in hypocrisy. Let me give you some of the sayings that you're probably familiar with. Think about this. You are evil if you're driving that truck or that SUV and you're destroying the entire planet because of your fossil fuel emission. So says the politician who's flying across the Atlantic on his private jet to some climate summit. Or how about this one? All medical decisions, and what they really mean is aborting your child, should be a decision between the doctor and the patient. So says the person who wants to force government vaccine mandates upon you. Or my least favorite, this is one you'll see in the culture, the guns that you use to keep your family safe makes us all unsafe, so says the politician that's guarded by those very guns. Dear ones, you and I are literally swimming in hypocrisy of our culture. The point that we should learn here in Matthew is that if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, called out of this world and belong to the great God and Savior, you and I can't follow suit. We must not be the hypocrites ourselves. And so this means then that we must learn to hold ourselves to the same standard that we're holding other people to. And I think this is part and parcel to, of what we find in Matthew seven twelve, where Jesus says, do unto others as you want done unto you. That's where this is all driving. Do unto others as you want done unto you. For what? This is the law and the prophets. So if you and I are holding someone to the same standard we're holding ourselves to, we're simply living that out. We're doing unto others as we want done unto us. All right, now, let's continue in verses 3 through 5. Now we're going to see Jesus using hyperbole to show the absurdity of judging someone in a hypocritical way. Matthew 7, 3 through 5, I love this. He says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. Verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Germans, notice here the absurdity in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck? The term speck there, karphos, would be like a little straw or perhaps a little piece of wood that would easily be blown about the wind. It ends up in your eye. Um, earlier on, I was talking to Bob, I had an eyelash in my eye, and that can be painful enough. But the idea is it's some little speck, but here it's a symbol of a little sin. Now, notice the hyperbole that's contrasted with the log that is in your own eye, the dokos. Now, we know that's hyperbole because technically it is impossible. Well, maybe it's not impossible, but I think it would be very difficult to have a log in your own eye. 
But notice the absurdity. I love this. Jesus is really driving home a point, isn't he? Notice verse 4. He says, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own. Isn't that a great visual? You're trying to help. Hey, you got a little something in your eye. Meanwhile, you've got this log protruding out of your own. It's a beautiful scenario. And every human being has had something in their eye, and they know exactly what Jesus is saying. But again, the little speck represents little sin. The log represents great sin. And the point is very clear. How can you point out the sin in another person's life? All the while, you're either doing the, some, the same thing or you're doing something greater. Now, Jesus gives the assessment of such judgment. Notice in verse 5, he says, you hypocrite. Meaning, if you do judge that way, the speck while you have the log, you're a hypocrite. Now, remember, I've talked about this before in Matthew. The hypocrite was literally a play actor in ancient Israel. In fact, in the ancient Near East. That's what the term meant. In fact, if you've ever traveled to Israel, you'll go to some of the amphitheaters there. And they were there during the time of Jesus. And you will see where these play actors, these hypocrites, would go on stage. They would wear a giant mask to hide their true identity. And so they really were pretending to be something that they were not. So Jesus uses this as his assessment of those who judge in a hypocritical way. They're nothing more than a play actor, concealing their true identity. So what is the remedy? What is the remedy to judging in a hypocritical way? Well, notice Jesus gives that to us. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye. Notice the term first, protos. It's literally there in the Greek. You first do that. Why? Because only when you have the sin removed from your own life can you really see clearly to assess someone else. That is the idea. Now, notice here, if you see clearly, you can actually help another brother or sister with their sin. The big point that Jesus is driving at is that his church, those who are called by his name, must not live in a hypocritical way. Think about the damage that has been done through the hypocrisy that we often see, for example, with the televangelist. You remember years ago, we had Jimmy Swaggart and there was Jim Baker. And these men were calling people to repent all the while living in great sin themselves. And so what's the problem with that? Well, it brings disrepute upon Christ's name. Many years ago, I remember watching a Word of Faith teacher on the TV lambasting people in his congregation because they weren't giving enough money. Now think about the hypocrisy. The word of faith doctrine is heresy. Now let me explain real briefly why. When you and I talk about faith from the Bible, we say that faith must have an object. And the only valid object of faith is God or Christ and his promises, the person and work of Christ. But when the word of faith uses the term faith, they equivocate upon the term, and they use it differently. They use faith as a force. And the words that come from your mouth are containers of that force in which they believe they can manipulate the world around them. So if you're poor, well, you just got to start speaking it out, and you're going to be wealthy. If you've got a boo-boo on your right arm, start speaking it out. You're not going to have that boo-boo anymore. Ken Copeland went so far as to say that he could speak storms out of existence while he was flying. So do you see in the Word of Faith movement, faith is like a force, much like Luke Skywalker uses to get his lightsaber from across the room. But it's not directed towards the person and work of Christ. So as this Word of Faith teacher who's teaching a different gospel, and by the way, therefore he's anathematized. The Apostle Paul himself says in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone would preach a different gospel, even an angel from heaven, let him be an anathema literally cursed of hell. But as he's hypocritically holding to a different gospel, one in which distorts the very nature of faith, he's telling all of his congregation that if they would simply have enough faith, they would no longer be in the dire predicaments they are with their health and their finances. And if they would just give a little bit more, then he could have that next jet to go fly to the next conference. That's the type of hypocrisy that we have seen in the evangelical world. And dear ones, we cannot enter into that sort of thinking 
and that sort of behavior because it brings disrepute upon Christ's name. Now, one more thing I want to point out here. I want you to notice here how Jesus is focused on how we treat and judge our brothers and sisters. We know that because three times in the underline, it says your brother's eye or your brother. So the brother there, the Adelphos, is certainly the believer. Now, why is that important? Because I'm going to show you in our application, it's particularly egregious to God if you and I sit in a condemnatory way and judge our fellow brothers and sisters. Why? Two things I want you to think about. First of all, believers are never condemned in Scripture. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away once and for all through the shed blood of Christ the moment we believe. So what that means then is in the New Testament, we as believers are called to help our fellow believers live that out. We are therefore engaged in the ministry of restoration, but never condemnation. Now, in our application, I'll fill this out more, but I want you to think about three things we must do. If we have to point out sin in a fellow believer's life, I think we have to do it in three ways so that we don't end up engaging in hypocritical judgment. Number one, we point out sin or error biblically rather than through personal preference. So let's say I get after you because you're eating a ton of pork. Well, are you bound by Eric Dalma's suggestion that you shouldn't eat pork? By the way, I like pork, but just for the hypothetical, if I start telling you that, no, you can say, hey, Eric, doesn't it say in Mark 7, 19, Jesus declared all foods clean? Yes, and you would be right. And you're bound by what Christ says. He's the mediator of the new covenant, not me or any other person. So, dear ones, you and I have to bind people biblically, not according to preference. That's number one. Number two, not just biblically, but you and I should, if we have to show fault with a fellow believer, do it privately. By the way, we find both of these concepts in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. Remember, it says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. Now, in our application, I'll talk about some times where we have to do it publicly, but the general default is do it privately. So number one, we do it biblically. Number two, we do it privately. Number three, we're not to do it hypocritically. In other words, we hold ourselves to the same standard. So how do we help a brother or sister out of sin? We do it biblically, we do it privately, and we don't do it hypocritically. That's what we see, and I'll flesh that out more in our applications. Now, let's come to verse 6 here, where Jesus now changes from telling us how we ought not to judge hypocritically to calling us, ironically, to judge when we should not give the gospel to those who continuously reject it. Notice he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, notice both in blue and red. We have to interpret both what's in blue and red to properly understand this passage. So let's begin with asking ourselves, what is it that's holy and what are the pearls that Jesus is referring to? And by the way, they are synonymous. Well, what we find in the Gospel of Matthew is that which is of greatest value is the Gospel of Christ. The Gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ, which, if you believe, gives you entrance into the kingdom. So sometimes it's called the Gospel of the kingdom, but it's the Gospel about the person and work of Christ. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bible to Matthew 13, verses 45 through 46. I want to show you evidence for this. And I'm going to show you how pearls are used by Christ in this particular saying that he has in this parable. Matthew 13, 45 through 46. Now remember, in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching parables to those who are outside of his disciples But then he pulls his disciples aside and he tells them plainly what the parables mean. Well, the disciples ask him, why do you do that, Lord? Why do you give it to them in parables what you tell us plainly? Well, in Matthew 13, 11, Jesus says, because to you it's been given the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So when we come to that passage, there's a lot in there about the doctrine of election, about the judgment of hardening, etc., But for our purposes, notice here this particular parable, verses 45 through 46. Jesus says again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Dear ones, what is that pearl that's of great value, in fact, such great value that the merchant sells everything that he has to get it? The implication here is it's the gospel. Jesus, his person, his work, is the pearl of such great cost that we should do all we can to have it. That's the point that Jesus is driving at. And so I'm just pointing out evidence that, yes, the pearls and what is holy in the gospel of Matthew is the gospel. I see that some scholars have claimed that it's the Eucharist or the food associated with the Lord's Supper. I don't think that that's accurate. Now, the second thing we have to define is everything in red. What are the dogs and the swine? Well, as much as we as Americans like our woofies, I've got a little cocker spaniel myself, dogs in the Israelite culture were considered unclean. And the same, obviously, with the swine. So the dogs and the swine are often symbolic of the unregenerate, the pagan, those who are far off from the promises of God. So what Jesus is telling us is that we should not give the gospel to these dogs and swine. Now, to prove that the dogs and swine are, in fact, the unregenerate, notice here in 2 Peter 2.22, here Peter's talking about the false teachers, the false teachers who at some point in their life appeared to the eye that they were, in fact, believers, but later on they lived and taught in such a way where it became obvious that they were not believers. That's why Peter says it has happened to them According to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, again, that's female swine, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. What Peter's pointing out is it may have appeared that these were believers, but later on their doctrine and their deeds revealed their true colors. Now, again, Jesus is talking about the same dogs and swine that Peter is. So here's the issue. Jesus is clearly telling us that we ought not to give the gospel at times to these dogs and swine, but he doesn't give us specifics. In fact, let me first begin by saying why he tells us not to do that. First of all, he says, because they, these dogs and swine, will trample them under their feet. That is, they hold the gospel and the scriptures in disrepute. But second, they will also turn and tear you to pieces. So, dear ones, Jesus here is giving us wisdom. While we can certainly expect to be persecuted for the faith that we have, I think the point here is we don't have to go looking for it. Now, again, Jesus does not give us specifics as to who the dogs and the swine are. But let me give you three factors that I think we should think about when we're preaching the gospel to the unregenerate and who the dogs and swine may be. And we'll unpack this more in our application. Number one, I think the pigs and the swine here are those who have been given the word but continuously reject it. They won't listen and are openly hostile to the word of God. That's number one. Number two, they are unconcerned with the wrath of God. If they're unconcerned about the bad news, why give the good news? Number three, they are apostates who at once, at one time in their life, had a knowledge of Christ, but not a saving one. They were professors, but never, never possessors, much like the dog and the sow in Second Peter 2.22. Remember, two true Christians can never lose their salvation. John 10.27-28. Okay, now, we'll unpack more of this, but again, the big issue in this section is Jesus does not want us to judge in a hypocritical way He wants us to hold ourselves to the same standard we hold others. But here, he doesn't want us just to throw our minds out the window and just give the gospel to anyone. No, it requires discernment, lest we be trampled to pieces. All right, now, let me come to some applications. I have three of them for you here this morning that I think flow from this text. Number one, we should be very careful about judging fellow believers. In fact, we're called never to judge them. Remember, our mission in life Our calling is one of restoration, not condemnation. So yes, we are to help our fellow brothers and sisters, but we're never the judge of them. 
Number two, we should avoid giving the gospel to those who mock God's word and are unconcerned about God's wrath. And we'll talk more about some of the conditions we see in the Bible for that. Number three, we must be doers of the word and not just hearers. The way that you and I want to avoid hypocrisy is that we live the words that we proclaim. That if we really believe, we really have to obey. Not that we're not justified by faith alone, but it's those who really believe end up acting on what they truly believe. Okay, so let's begin with number one. Dear ones, we want to affirm on the one hand that it is godly to help brothers and sisters out of sin in their lives. And it's inevitable that all of us will at some time have issues. But we also want to affirm that we don't want to be judges and condemnatory towards our fellow brothers and sisters, lest we line up like Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. So our goal is always the spiritual well-being of our fellow brothers and sisters. And I want to point that out in James 5, 19 through 20. This, I think, is a passage that should be studied alongside of what Jesus has just told us in Matthew 7 thus far. Notice here, James 5, 19 through 20, James begins by saying, my brethren. Now, why is that important? Because it's directed towards believers. My brethren, he says, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does it mean, first of all, to stray from the truth? We can stray from the truth in sin, and again, both our doctrine, what we believe, and also our deed. Remember, our deeds, the way we act, always follows from what we really believe. If you really think steak is the best thing for you, you're going to eat a lot of steak. You always act on what you truly believe. If you think that, that life or that seatbelt is going to save your life, you'll wear your seatbelt. If you think it's going to harm you, you're not going to wear it. We always act on what we truly believe. And so in our doctrine or deed, we can go astray. But notice another brother or sister who turns him back. The term turn back there, epistrapho, is a term that is synonymous with repentance. So another believer helps the believer in error, neither doctrine or deed, to repent. What is the result of that? Well, we see it in blue. They will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What does it mean to be saved from death? I think here... The soul being saved from death is probably the ultimate death, the second death, which is the lake of fire. That they'll save them in that way. Now, why? Because they cover over their multitude of sins. Again, the scriptures teach us that we're saved by faith alone. But again, we always act on what we truly believe. And so if we truly believe, we have to act on it. And so the idea is someone is pointing out, hey, you're not living according to the truth of the scriptures. And they're bringing them back to the straight and narrow path of salvation. That's the idea. Now, again, how should we help our brothers and sisters? I mentioned those three things. We should do it biblically, we should do it privately, and we should do it without hypocrisy. Let me begin again with biblically. When you read Matthew 18, 15 through 18, we're going to come to that. You and I as believers, Jesus Christ, are called to do binding and loosing. And binding and loosing simply means that we are morally bound by the terms of the new covenant on what we should do and what we should not do. But where the new covenant is silent, you and I are loosed or have freedom. Again, are we free to steal or to murder? No, we're bound not to do that. But again, are you free to buy one type of toothpaste or buy one type of car? Well, of course you are. The word of God doesn't say thou shalt only drive Fords or what have you. Okay, that's the idea. And so we have to help people see Air in their life, not according to our own, our own principles, but rather according to the scriptures. I remember some years ago, someone was being lambasted for watching football on Sunday, and I happened to peek up and kind of my attention was peaked because I love to watch football myself. Well, let me ask you this: Does it say thou shall not watch the NFL, even though there's probably better things to do? Does it say that in the scriptures? No. And so are we free to do so? Well, yes. So that's the kind of idea that I'm talking about. Oftentimes you'll have legalists who will browbeat people according to their personal preferences, but not according to the scriptures. We have to do it biblically. The second thing is we do it privately. Matthew 18, 15 says, if a brother sins, go to them in private. But there are exceptions to that. 
when public sin is disseminated, it should be handled publicly. Let me give you some scriptures to back that up. Think about in Galatians 2.14, the apostle Paul had to address Peter publicly because Peter, who was a Jew, living like a Gentile, compromised the gospel by asking the Gentiles, in fact, demanding that they would live like Jews. And so Paul had to address that publicly. In fact, it says before them all, he rebuked Peter. Why? Because it was public doctrine that was disseminated publicly that needed to be corrected publicly. And that's why you see in 1 Timothy 5.20, if an elder ever has to be put in his place for teaching error, Paul says rebuke them before them all. It's to be done publicly. When Bob DeWay corrects error through critical issues commentary, he's doing it because it is public teaching that he's correcting that must be corrected publicly. But generally speaking, if we see sin in a brother or sister's life, if it's not public teaching, something like that, we do it privately. Why? Because we're trying to restore them, not condemn them. The third thing is we don't do it hypocritically. We must hold ourselves again to the same standard. That's how we are to help our fellow brothers and sisters, always being those who will pray for them, love them, and want to see the best for them. Now, let's come to this idea of hypocritically judging brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus was warning about. And I want you to see that that is also a warning, ironically, in the book of James chapter 4. This is about falsely judging believers in a slanderous way. Notice again in James 4.11, it's addressed to believers. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Who are the brethren? It's fellow believers. Notice he says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Dear ones, I want to focus here on what you see in red. Notice the one who speaks against a brother is doing something vile. Why? Because the term speaks against, kataleleo, is probably a term that means slander here. And there's two elements of slander. Number one, saying things that aren't true or perhaps even that aren't totally true. And number two, it's done behind their back. Now, let's address the first one. Sometimes we may see something in someone's life, but we don't always have the full truth because we're not the mind-knower or the heart-reader. I should say that that was backwards. The mind-reader or the heart-knower that God is. In Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, we find that God alone knows the motives of the heart. That's why Bob had just taught us in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Remember, Paul said, Therefore, do not go making judgment until the time. That is, until the Lord returns, and he is the one who will bring to light the things hidden and disclose the motives of men's heart. Why? Because he alone knows it. So, dear ones, you and I cannot slander, say untrue things in a condemnatory way, because if we do so, you and I are not upholding the law. We are, in fact, being judges of the law. And therefore, we are setting ourselves up to be the mediator of the covenant, God ourselves. Now, how is it that if you and I would slander and speak against a brother or sister that we're actually judging the law? I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. And what I'm going to claim is that the ultimate point of the law is that we would love and show mercy. And so if we, with our fellow brothers and sisters, don't show mercy and love, but rather a condemnatory attitude, we are violating the very law that we supposedly support. Matthew 12, 7, please turn there. Now, as you're turning to Matthew 12, it's a very exciting passage. That's where Jesus is walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. He is walking with his disciples. And remember, Jesus is God incarnate. And therefore, the most important teacher to ever live. And he is on the most important mission of all time. Remember that scene in the Blues Brothers where they claimed to be on a mission from God? Well, Jesus really was. He was God incarnate on the most important mission. And so as his disciples become hungry, they start picking grain 
And the Pharisees used that to slander them and to get, condemn them. And notice how Jesus responds, Matthew 12, 7. He said, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The term actually literally is mercy. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Now, as Jesus quotes that, he's quoting from Hosea 6, 6. And you being the astute Bible student that you are will say, wait a minute, Eric, that's not the law. That's a prophet. Aha, and you're right. But I want you to see that Hosea's idea of showing mercy is rooted in the law itself. Turn your Bible again to Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, 6. I'm going to show you how God reveals himself, his essential character, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And what you will see fundamental to God's character is that he's a God of mercy. Therefore, if we're going to be followers of him... We have to be those who extend mercy. Exodus 34, verse 6. Remember, Moses had asked God to reveal himself. He's hidden in this cleft of the rock. And so he sees, in some sense, the glory caboose. And what is revealed is primarily through word. That's the most important thing. Verse 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Does everyone see the last two terms, loving kindness and truth? Loving kindness there is the term chesed. It's best rendered grace and mercy. I believe that grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Why do I say that? Because by definition, if you've been given God's grace, which is his unmerited favor, you've been given salvation even though you don't deserve it. By definition, you've also been given mercy or you don't get what you do deserve, namely God's wrath. So chesed is this idea. It's often translated loving kindness in the New American Standard Bible. It's this idea of grace and mercy. What's very interesting is Jesus in John 1.14 is revealed as the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. He's revealed by the same terminology as Yahweh in Exodus 34.6. Why? Because he's Yahweh. He's God. He's God incarnate. That's who he is. That's why Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. He declares himself to be God. And if you and I are going to be followers of this God, we're going to do what? We're going to show mercy. That's the kind of people we're going to be. We're not going to condemn our brothers and sisters. We want to mercifully help them out of their situation onto the straight and narrow path. Uh, turn your Bibles to one more verse. I promise I'm, you're going to get a workout in your Bible, but this will be worth it. Turn to Matthew 23, 23. This is that powerful rebuke of Christ, excuse me, by Christ of the Pharisees and scribes. Matthew 23, 23. I hope you've turned there. Notice what he says to them as he's rebuking them for their lack of faith. I'll give you a little bit more time here to turn to it. By the way, it's interesting, I was pointing out in Sunday school that in, in Ezekiel 10 and 11, remember God, because of the sin of Israel, leaves the temple, goes out to the Mount of Olives and leaves the glory of God. Jesus here is in the temple. He's the very glory of God. He's God. And because of the rebellion of Israel, he goes out to the Mount of Olives. And how many days later, he ends up ascending. He follows the same pattern because of the rebellion of Israel. And so notice how he lambasts the leadership. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Now, what are the weightier provisions? Law, justice, and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. A weightier matter of the law here, according to Jesus, God incarnate, is mercy. So, brothers and sisters, if you and I are not ones who want to show mercy and restoration to our fellow believers, then you and I are not living under the law. We have become judges of it and usurpers of it. That's the point. Think of it this way. If you and I have a mission of condemnation, you and I are lining up with Satan, who, according to Revelation 12.10, is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them night and day. Is that who we want to line up with? Or do we want to line up with Jesus Christ, the one who shows us mercy and also to our fellow brothers and sisters? Brothers and sisters, let us be those who help our other 
fellow brothers and sisters out of sin. Let's not be those who condemn. All right, now, Jesus taught us here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, that we should not give the gospel to swine and to dogs. And one question I want to answer is, are there any other principles in the scriptures that will help us define what the swine and dogs look like? In other words, if all unbelievers are not to be given the gospel, well, then no one would ever believe the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So we have to define it somehow. Let me give you three principles that I think we see in the scriptures. Number one, those who should not be given the gospel, first of all, are those who have been given the word they continuously won't listen, and they're openly hostile. Number two, they are unconcerned about God's wrath. Now, let me explain that a little bit further. Do you remember in John sixteen eight, the role of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? So a work of the Spirit is to make the unregenerate concerned about the coming wrath. So if they remain unconcerned about the coming wrath, the bad news, why give them the good news? If they don't worry about the disease, the remedy will make no sense. Think of it this way. Think about you're on the 43rd floor of the IDS building, and some rascal comes running down the hallway screaming and yelling, I love you, and he just jumps right out the window. And you're like, what in the world was that all about? doesn't make any sense. He just jumps to his death. You think, wow, that's terrible. But let's say you find out that this rascal had a bomb that was going to blow you up and everyone else on the 43rd floor. All of a sudden, that bad news of what you've been spared makes his love and jumping out the window, it makes it make sense. Dear ones, oftentimes I think we give the I love you, but we don't explain the bad news from which they've been spared. And so I think people have to be concerned with the wrath of God. If they're not concerned about the bad news, why give them the good news? Number three, is the apostate who knew the gospel, but they never ultimately had possession of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? The reformers define saving faith in three elements. Notitia, knowledge. A census, having the facts and agreeing that they're true. But the third part was fiducia. The idea of trust, it's for me. So remember in the book of James, it talks about how demons even believe and they shudder. Demons know who Christ is. They have the data, the notitia, the knowledge. They have a census to the facts. They know the facts are true of Christ, but they want nothing to do with him. In the same way, there are people in our lives that you and I will see who seemed early in their lives to be true professors of Christ, but later, it's shown that they're never, they never were possessors. What should we do? Well, I'm going to show you that we shouldn't try to reach them, that they are part of the swine and the dogs. Now, let me begin by showing you Matthew 10, 14 and build the case to define the dogs and the swine. Notice here, Jesus had sent out his 12. And remember, he said to them earlier in Matthew 10 that when his 12 went out to preach the gospel, it was not to be to the Gentiles. It was not to be to the Samaritans, but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So notice this is the instruction, what they are to do. The 12, he says, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Notice, first of all, the term receive there, decamai, they're not welcoming what you're saying. And the term heed there, akua, is literally listen. They're not hearing you. In other words, they're rejecting the gospel message of your words. Well, what did Jesus advise? Well, notice he says, shake the dust off your feet. He doesn't say, keep pursuing them, just be you know, doggedly persistent. No, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Now, why does he use that phrase? Because a pious Jew living in Jesus' day, if they would travel outside of Israel and come back from the Gentile area, if they were very pious, they would take their shoe off, their sandal, and they would dust the the sand from it. And the reason they would do that is because they wanted to show that they really had no part with the Gentiles or the Gentiles had nothing to do with them. They were the people of Israel and the king of kings. So the idea is have nothing to do with them. That's the implication. And you see this elsewhere. 
You see it again in Acts 18.6. Here, Paul is at Corinth. Remember, he reasoned with the Jews first in their synagogues. But notice what it says. It says that when they, that would be the Jews in the synagogues, resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Again, they resisted and blasphemed the gospel. What did he do? He shook out his garments. Much like what Jesus had commanded, dust off your feet. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to be people who give the gospel to the unregenerate. But we're not called to continuously beat our heads against the wall and give it to those who openly mock and continuously resist. I think that's the dividing line. Let me give you one more example. Here's Acts 9.9. Paul's preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. It says, but... When some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way that would be of Christianity, the gospel, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, dear ones, notice here in red, the Jews in the synagogue were speaking evil of the way. Did Paul just say, well, you know what? I'm going to keep on keeping on. And I'm not going to let up. I'm just going to keep giving the gas pedal to the floor. I'm going to keep giving him the gospel. No, he didn't do that. He, as the old saying goes, he saturated them with his absence. He was out of there. And he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, let me handle the third category. That is an apostate, someone who appeared to be a believer. They had true knowledge of the gospel, but they didn't have saving faith. What must we do with them? Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John 5:16 through 17. 1 John 5:16 through 17 I think talks about the sin of apostasy. Being in this state in which they will no longer hear the evidence and come to faith. 1 John 5:16 through 17 notice here John says if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Now, notice the next clause. He says, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. Now, let's stop there. What type of sin leads to death? Rejection of Christ. And I think if we would define what this means here in 1 John, it is synonymous with the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, as we proceed through the gospel, we will find out is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit such that A human being can never take in any of the evidence the Spirit gives for Christ's messianic credentials. Remember, Jesus says, blasphemy of the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why? The leadership of Israel was taking deeds done by the Spirit that proves Christ's messianic credentials, and they were attributing them to Beelzebul, to Satan. If someone will not listen to the evidence for who Christ is, and they've once been exposed and once enlightened, there's no getting them again. The apostates, dear ones, we do not have to continuously bring them the gospel. I think these are part of the dogs and the swine, as Jesus was referring to in Matthew 7, 6. Okay, now, with that, let's come to our final point. I think the big issue today in our text is not judging others in a hypocritical way, meaning that we're holding others to a different standard than we hold ourselves or that we're living in the very way that we condemn in others. The Bible, dear ones, is very clear that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. But those who truly believe will end up acting on it. And if we act in such a way as unbecoming a Christian and we continuously do that throughout our lives, it's evidence that we never really believe. That's the relationship between faith and obedience. Think of it this way. Let me give you an analogy between Romans chapter 4 and James 2. Now, why am I going to give you an analogy? Well, because do you remember Luther? Luther, of course, was right in saying that salvation is by faith alone. He loved Romans 4. But when he came to James chapter 2 and James said, faith without works is dead, Luther didn't like that. He thought that was a contradiction. In fact, he called it an epistle of straw. 
But I want you to see in your minds when we compare Romans 4 and James 2 that there's no contradiction at all. In Romans 4, Paul proves that every human being is justified by faith alone by citing from Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's established. You're saved by faith alone the moment you believe. So what is James' point then in James 2? He's not saying that faith doesn't save. What James is qualifying is what kind of faith saves. So isn't it interesting in Romans 4, Paul cites from Genesis 15, Abraham believing. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James cites from Genesis 22 how Abraham acted. In other words, Abraham acted on his faith. He believed God to the point he was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. So because he truly believed Genesis 15, he truly acted Genesis 22. That's the idea. And so this is why the Apostle Paul will say the things that he does, like in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 or 27. The man who says salvation is by faith alone, the Apostle Paul, who is exactly right, notice what he says. He says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The Apostle Paul would affirm you're saved by faith alone. But notice he's saying that after he preached to others, he wanted to make sure that he had lived in such a way and disciplined his body so that he would not sin in such a way that after he preached to others, he would not be disqualified. Disqualified from what? The eschatological prize. That's clearly what he's referring to. Now, the idea then is if you really believe, you end up really obeying. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who really obey. That's why James says in James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who truly act on what we believe and show our faith to be genuine. And let us therefore be those who don't hypocritically judge our fellow brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know who you are and what you require of us through the scriptures. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that in the days, weeks, months, and years that we have left in our lives, and should you tarry, that you would enable us to be those who live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would not be those who condemn our fellow brothers and sisters, but help them in restoration, that we'd be those who love and show mercy. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would also give us ample opportunity to give the gospel, that you would open up hearts before us and our family, friends, and coworkers who don't know you so that your love and your salvation can be given to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.